Father God, we come to you now with not only praise for your greatness, but thankfulness for your goodness. It's so wonderful, Lord, to know that the one who is sovereignly in control of this entire universe and of our individual lives is a God of love, a God of compassion, a God who is holy and righteous and just, and a God who can be known and who wants to be known by us in a personal way. Father, we just thank you for having created not only all that surrounds us in the beauty of nature and in the provisions for our daily sustenance, but for creating us in your image so that we have minds and souls that in some small way can appreciate and reverence just exactly who you are. And now, Father, I would ask that you would open our minds, open our hearts, take away the clutter from all that we might think about in our busy lives so that we might hear that which the Holy Spirit has for each one of us individually this morning. And may we, Lord, have wisdom, which you alone can impart to us, to take what we learn and apply it to our lives. Now I ask that you would bless this study of your word for the glory of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Throughout the word of God, the searching student can discover beautiful and rich comparisons and contrasts between truths and principles revealed in the Old Testament and those which are revealed in the New Testament. For example... In the Old Testament, Genesis, the marvelous book of beginnings, which we studied the last four years, in Genesis it proclaims that the human-divine relationship began with man being made in the image of God. It says in John, uh, excuse me, Genesis 1.26, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. In a seemingly strange turn of events, we find when we turn to the New Testament that God himself was made in the likeness of man. It says in John 1.14, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Then, another contrast, in a perfect and beautiful garden of plenty, the Edenic garden, the Garden of Eden, man, who was... Adam, his name was Adam because Adam in Hebrew means man. Man marred the image of God in himself by willfully rebelling against God. So he gave God's arch enemy, a fallen angel named Lucifer, we know him better as Satan, he gave him a temporary victory over his soul, and it was only temporary because of God's grace, which provided man with a promised Savior. Now, in glorious contrast, millennia later, in a sin-cursed and barren wilderness of poverty, God, Jesus Christ, who is referred to as the second Adam, had condescended to be made in the likeness of men, as we talked about, and he fully triumphed over the temptations of Satan to disobey God. Remember when Satan, in the wilderness for 40 days, tried to get Christ to disobey God. He wasn't in a perfect garden of plenty when he had victory over Satan's temptations. He was in a barren wilderness of poverty. So again, the contrast there we have between the first Adam and the second Adam. In the Old Testament sacrificial system, it was the sheep which died for the shepherds. The shepherds profited from the death of the sheep because it was the blood of innocent lambs which served 
the shepherds as a temporary atonement or covering for their sins. However, we find in the New Testament that it was the shepherd, the shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died for the sheep, believers, his sheep. It was the sheep who profited from the death of the shepherd. It was the blood of the Lamb of God, which became the permanent, not just a temporary, but the permanent atonement for the sins of his sheep. Those who heard his, hear his voice and follow him. Those are the Lord's sheep. Those who follow him in faith. Well, after the Lord's birth, uh, do you remember when he was about two years of age, he was offered gold and frankincense and myrrh by wise men who worshipped him. But at the time of his death, here's the contrast, he was offered thorns, vinegar, and spit, spittle by wicked men who mocked him. It's also recorded in the scripture, and this is interesting, that Christ saved a sinner under a tree. His name was Nathaniel. He saved another sinner up in a tree, and his name was Zacchaeus. And he saved another sinner on a tree. We don't know that man's name, but he was the thief who repented, the one who was crucified on one side of the Lord. So he saved a sinner up in a tree, another one on a tree, one under a tree, and yet he saved not himself when he was nailed to a tree. Now these few, these are just a few of what are many, many fascinating scriptural comparisons, they spell out for us the purposes for both the Lord's life and his death. And those two purposes are actually knit together because Jesus Christ was born to die. His life and his death, his birth and his death were knit together because he was born to die. Since all men inherit the Adamic sin nature, and since all men also willfully, like Adam, choose to rebel against God, and sin is rebellion against God, all men, therefore, are born spiritually dead, and all men, therefore, are doomed to die physically. We know this because Romans 6.23 tells us clearly that sin, uh, or the wages of sin, is death. Now, down through the ages, men have tried to bridge the gap which separates them from God, and they have attempted to do this in many ways, by doing all sorts of good works, by, by living moral, or what they think are moral lives, by devising profound philosophies, and even by being very religious. However, no amount of good works, no matter how many good works a person can do, no amount can ever save anybody. Apart from faith in Christ, God views all of man's attempts at righteousness or good works as filthy rags, tells us in Isaiah 64, 6. There was only one possible solution for man's problem of sin and separation from God. And that single remedy was for God himself in the person of the triune Godhead to become a man and to live a perfectly sinless life and then die and shed his sinless blood to atone for the sins of the whole world. He made it possible for anyone who would put their faith in his atoning work on their behalf to be saved from paying, from having to pay the wages of sin themselves, which is eternal separation from God, death, in other words. So Christ, therefore, bridged the otherwise 
uncrossable or impassable gap which had separated man from God. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. It also says in Romans 5.8, you all know this verse, But God commendeth or proved his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, it was for us that the good shepherd was willing to lay down his life. And it was for us that the king of kings was willfully quiet when he was mocked with thorns and vinegar and spittle. Although he saved men in trees and under trees and on trees, it was for us that he willingly submitted himself to be nailed to a tree and suffer a very agonizing death. Now that is perfect love. Well, the title for this second lesson in our Chronological Life of Christ study is A Life Worth Knowing. Our last lesson was A Life Worth Studying. This one is A Life Worth Knowing. Now, on our general outline for this study, which is located at the very beginning of your workbooks, we are going to move to the second main division, which is entitled The Pre-Incarnation of Christ. Our first division we covered last weekend, and that was the preface of Christ's life. And now we're going to move into the section called the pre-incarnation of Christ. And the word pre-incarnation simply speaks of the existence of Christ before he took up his temporary residence in a human flesh and blood body. So before he was born, before he became incarnated. Carne is the the, uh, Latin or the, the Spanish word for meat. So it's before he became flesh and blood. Under this uh, heading, the pre-incarnation of Christ, we're going to consider three important matters which preceded the Lord's actual physical birth. And in this current lesson, we're going to discuss two prologues, the two prologues which preceded the record of the Lord's birth. Now, the first prologue was written by Luke in order to present proof as to the reliability of of the gospel message about Christ. And that is what we'll look at in verses 1 to 4 of Luke chapter 1. It's the first prologue. Then the second prologue was written by John to present the facts regarding the pre-incarnate deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we'll look at in verses 1 to 5 of John chapter 1. Now, in the two lessons which are going to follow, in lessons three and four, we're also going to discuss two genealogies of Christ, which are presented for us in Matthew and in Luke. And then we're going to look at three announcements, which were supernaturally made uh, to three very significant people. First one was to Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist. The second was to Mary, the mother of Jesus Christ. And, of course, the third, as you know, was to Joseph, the stepfather of the Lord Jesus Christ. So with that, we're going to look now at two prologues, and we will begin with Luke's prologue, which I have subtitled, Proof of Christ. Most Bible scholars who have taken the time to put together a harmony of the four Gospels, if you're not sure what a harmony is, and you weren't here last week, we do have last week's tape is available out there in the foyer for $1. All of our tapes are $1 apiece. But those who have put put together a harmony of the four Gospels, in other words, taking them and putting them in chronological order, they 
claim that the starting point for the four Gospels should be Luke's prologue. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. And the probable reason for this is that it was um, that Luke was the only one of the four gospel writers who gave us any indication of the sources which he used for writing his account. He actually tells us where he got his sources. In fact, he even states in those verses the purpose for his written record of Christ. He says in verse 4 that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. Well, let's look. We haven't done it yet. Let's look at the first four verses of Luke chapter 1. He says, For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, all things about Christ, he's speaking here, to write unto thee in order, in other words, in the best chronological order he could, most excellent Theophilus, that's a man he is addressing in this book. Now verse 4 that I've already read to you, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. Now this book of Luke, this gospel account of Luke, was written to a man named what? Theophilus. He was a man, he was probably Greek because that's definitely a Greek name. Um, and his name consists of two significant Greek words. One of these words we talked about last week was theos, which means what? Anybody remember? Yeah, God. Theos means God. And phileo, some of you will know that Greek word, it's one of four Greek words for love. You've heard of the Church of Philadelphia? Church of love, brotherly love. Adelphos means brother. So when you put Theophilus' name together, it means a lover of God, one who loves God, which is very interesting. You know, I think that uh, there was more than just, this is just more than coincidence that Luke wrote this book in particular to this man Theophilus because the Holy Spirit used this man's name to tell us that Luke was really writing to all lovers of God, right? Or those who are open to being a lover of God. Luke was a very scholarly, bright physician. Remember we talked about the fact that he was a physician. They know he was very scholarly because this gospel is written in the, in the best classical Greek that there is. Now we don't see that in English but it's written in, in high-class Greek. Um, now, he was, as we talked about also last week, not only a physician, but he was a historian. And he felt, apparently he felt compelled by the Holy Spirit to give written assurance to lovers of God, to believers, in other words, who had only, up to this point, other than Matthew and Mark, and not everybody had those books yet, they had only this far in time been verbally taught the things about Jesus Christ. Now, Luke wrote approximately a generation after the death of Christ. And his readers were primarily who? You remember from last week? His primary readers were Gentiles, yeah, Greeks, primarily. And uh, they had been instructed by, they had been instructed about Christ by itinerant traveling preachers. So everything so far really that they had, there's Theophilus, <laughs> uh, everything that they had so far 
um, was just verbal. So they needed some authoritative assurance that what they were being taught was absolutely accurate and true. So Luke says here in his prologue that he felt it was good and wise to carefully investigate all that was orally transmitted, all that was orally spoken by the apostles, as well as uh, what was contained in various written accounts that were available. And so the three main sources that Luke used in writing his historic inspired account of the life of Jesus Christ were what we're going to call uh, living, this is on your outline, living apostles. He actually met some of the apostles. They were still alive, and he talked with them and interviewed them, et cetera, et cetera. Then he also talked to some of the living authors, people who had written down the accounts from Christ and the apostles. And we'll talk about that. And the third source was living attestations. That's just a big word for um, living interviews, people who attested to what they saw and heard, people who had actually seen and known Christ or one of the apostles. All right, so we'll start with the living apostles. Now, as I mentioned in last week's lesson, Luke was not one of the 12 original apostles. He was, however, closely associated, this was one of your questions, with who? Luke was closely associated with Paul, right. He traveled with Paul. He was with Paul until Paul um, was martyred. Now, the apostolic accounts of Christ are what Luke is referring to in verse 2 when he says, eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. He's talking there about the apostles. The apostles had been commissioned by Christ in the Great Commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel message, the, the, the message of salvation in Jesus Christ. And they, so they, the apostles, with a capital A, the original apostles, communicated to others the truth which they, as eyewitnesses, had seen and heard from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Luke was not only directly associated with the apostle Paul, but he also had met James. Now, there's a number of Jameses in the New Testament. The James which he had met, who he had met, was James the brother of Jesus, not James the apostle. No, actually, there were two James who were apostles. One was James, the, the brother of John. The two sons of Zebedee were called the sons of thunder, you know, James and John. And the other James was the son of Alphaeus. But Luke had met James, the, the half-brother of Jesus, and that would be pretty important, right, to get information about the childhood of Christ. So, and we know that from um, Acts 21:18. Also, he had met and talked with the elders of the first church, the, ch the Jerusalem church. And it's probable that he had opportunity to meet other apostles as well uh, before they were martyred. It's particularly likely that Luke, at some point in time, had an opportunity to meet with the Apostle John, since John was the last apostle to, to enter into the Lord's presence. You know, he, he lived the longest. So probably Luke also had met John somewhere along the line and talked with him. Okay, so that he had living apostles with whom he could talk and learn about the Lord Jesus Christ. Because remember, Luke never met the Lord Jesus Christ personally. All right, then we have living authors. By the time Luke wrote 
his letter to, or his book, to Theophilus. There would have been many concise historical narratives available concerning, now these wouldn't have necessarily been inspired, God inspired, but there would have been written accounts concerning the life and the teachings and the miracles and the parables and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Apparently, what Luke did is he collected and copied a lot of these documents, these written records, as he traveled, and he traveled quite a bit. We know from the book of Acts that Luke traveled extensively with not only the Apostle Paul, but with uh, Silas and others as well. And during all of those journeys, in addition to being involved in evangelism and also probably using his medical skills, you know, when he saw sick people and stuff like that, Luke was also busily collecting all the written records that he could find from those who had taken the time and made the effort to record the words which had been spoken to them. Let's say they went to church that week when the Apostle Peter, you know, they had a big revival and P Peter was going to be their speaker. There might have been a people in the audience who would have written down everything Peter said. So he went around and collected all of those written accounts, or at least those he could get his hands on. And with the meticulous care of a physician recording the necessary details of a patient's case history, he, had, uh, he, he went into great, uh, great search to find the facts, and then when he found them, he sat down and he wrote them. He wrote them in the best order that he possibly could. They do say Luke's account is the most chronological of the four gospel accounts. Now, we know that, of course, all of this was guided and directed by the Holy Spirit, because this account, Luke's book, is divinely inspired. All right, the third source he used was what we call, I call living attestations, just to stay with the A's here, but it was like living interviews. He would have had also great opportunities to obtain authentic information from people other than the apostles, from people who had either seen and her or and or heard the Lord Jesus himself because those people it was just only a generation after Christ there'd be a lot of people still alive who had seen and heard the Lord Jesus or you know he'd be able to interview and talk with people who had seen and heard directly one of the original apostles we also learned from Colossians 4:10 that Luke had come to know and spend time with Mark, John, that's John Mark. And who had, you know, Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark? Who had John spent, I mean, who had Mark spent a lot of time with? This was another one of your questions. Right, Peter. So that was helpful, right? He spent a lot of time with Mark, and Mark had spent a lot of time with Peter. Even though we don't know that Luke ever met Peter, it probably would have told us if he had. And it doesn't say he ever met Peter. But he knew John Mark, and so he learned a lot about Peter from John Mark. Um, perhaps some of the people that Luke met and interviewed prior to writing his gospel were people who had actually witnessed and participated in one of the Lord's miraculous feedings. You know, um, the feeding of the 5,000 or the feeding of the 4,000. There would have been, there was a lot of people that, there th those days. I mean, that was just the number of men. You count the women and children, there was lots of people. 
So I'm sure along the way he met some of those people, people who had actually tasted some of the Lord's supernaturally created fish and barley loaves. Um, many of the people who had witnessed one of the Lord's miracles would still be alive and would be able to talk to Luke. And he, he went around like he was on Fox News or something, I guess, you know, interviewing and taking notes and, and recording all this. And he would eliminate stuff that obviously didn't fit in with the rest that looked really suspicious. He would get rid of that. Um, he would also talk to people who had heard directly one of the Lord's sermons. And when the Lord spoke the Sermon on the Mount, there was a great crowd that, there that day. Um, so you get the point, right? There would still be a lot of living, people living who had actually seen and heard the Lord or seen and heard one of his apostles. And Lord, Luke used these people and their um, attestations to write his book. Then in addition to those that I've already mentioned, he also had associations with Barnabas. Luke was really a privileged guy, wasn't he? Like Paul and Silas and Barnabas and probably John. He also, we're told, um, had met with Philip, the evangelist, Philip. And that's in Acts 21.8. He had also met and talked with Agabus, the prophet, Acts 21.10, and with Manasin. And by the way, um, no, your books are right. Okay, forget that. Manasin, not Nathan, Manasin. It's a funny name. Um, and he was an old disciple of the Lord. And all these are found for us in Acts chapter 21. I think they're all in your notes as well. But Luke had ample opportunity. He had... He had extraordinary, an extraordinary advantage to obtain information about his subject. Who was his subject? The Lord Jesus Christ. And how did he present Christ? Let's have a little review. As the portrait of Christ that Luke used was as the son of man. Luke was a son of man. John was the son of God. Mark, the suffering servant of Jehovah God. And... Matthew, sovereign king, okay. It's widely speculated that Luke, a physician, would have naturally been concerned about conception and, the bir and birth, you know, those would be, he probably delivered many babies because a physician in those days did it all. <laughs> they didn't have all these specialized like we do today, so he did everything. So he would have been concerned about the conception and the birth of Christ. And so he probably got his information for his very famous second chapter. You know, the second chapter of Luke is the Christmas story. Probably got that information directly from who? Right, the Lord's mother, Mary. Now, do you remember uh, Mary kept all those things in her heart? You know, she pondered all those things that had happened to her being impregnated by God the Holy Spirit and, and all the amazing things that happened at the time of the birth of Christ and the conception. She kept those things in her heart. And uh, maybe she felt comfortable sharing them with Luke, a compassionate man, a man who was a physician. Now, Mary was very, very young when she conceived and gave birth to Jesus Christ. So she may well have still been alive at the time, you know, Luke was collecting all his material to write his gospel account. So it's very, very possible that he did have a direct interview with Mary. And being a physician, of course, would be an advantage, especially when talking to women, because that was something really, really private for women to talk about those things in that day. But, you know, if she was going to share what happened with anybody, she would share it with 
with a physician. Um, and also, he would have an advantage of talking, if you think about it, as a physician, he'd have an advantage to talking to people who had been healed by the Lord of various diseases and handicaps, because he certainly would understand about those things. So there was a lot of reasons I think God the Holy Spirit chose Luke to write this gospel. Also, we can speculate, and this is speculation, but we can speculate that Luke might have received the information about the birth of um, John the Baptist from Mary as well, because Mary was a cousin of Elizabeth, the mother of John the ba Baptist. And remember when Mary found out she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit, who did she go and see? Her cousin Elizabeth, who was a lot older. So we don't think Elizabeth was still alive when Luke was um, writing or gathering his material. But Mary spent the last three months of Elizabeth's pregnancy with her, and she stayed with Elizabeth until Elizabeth did give birth to John the Baptist. So if Luke wanted information about John the Baptist's birth and what went on there, he could have also gotten that information from Mary. So it's just very interesting. So we can see that Luke had a wide variety of resources and material available from which to research and compile the gospel which bears his name. He wrote, we can be sure, only after, you know, the most careful and painstaking investigation. He wrote only after um, working to put everything in order as much as he possibly could so that Theophilus and all other lovers of God would know for certain, have absolute assurance that the Christian instruction that they had received verbally was absolutely true and accurate. And so we really have no reason to doubt the accuracy of Luke's account um, or any of the other three gospel accounts at all. And the reason we don't have any reason to doubt what they wrote is because we know they were God-inspired in um, everything that they wrote. So we can trust. You know, are you, a, I want, let's make this personal a minute. Are you a lover of God? Could your other name be Theophilus? Did you ever think about that? <laughs> Are you a lover of God? Um, do you know that you can trust the accuracy of these four gospel accounts that tell us about the life of Jesus Christ? Maybe someone here isn't quite sure if you can trust these as being God-inspired. And if that's the case, I think it's the case only because maybe you don't know what's in these accounts and how amazing they are. And that's what we're going to study. We're going to look at every single word is so perfect. Every word in these gospel accounts is absolutely perfect and trustworthy. You know, faith comes by hearing. I think a lot of people don't have a great assurance of their faith because they just haven't heard enough from this word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And I can guarantee the more you study God's word, the more your faith will increase that this is a God-inspired work, book. Nothing to fear about opening it up. I used to, years ago, right after I became a Christian. I didn't grow up in a Christian home, and I never knew anything about the Bible till I was 32 years old. Um, and when I did come in faith, it was just a big jump of faith. And I was actually afraid to get into a study of this book because I thought, that's going to blow my faith. I'm going to find something in there that I just can't believe, you know, something too amazing, too, too far out to actually believe. So for eight years, I wasted uh, 
not looking in the Word of God. I was saved when I was 22, and it wasn't, well, actually, it was a little longer than that, 10 years. It wasn't until I was 32, and my husband got saved. He was 38 when he got saved that I finally got into studying God's Word. And, oh, I was so upset that I wasted all those years because as I studied, my faith grew and grew and grew. I have absolute assurance that this book is true. And because I have absolute insurance in this book, I also have absolute assurance that I'm saved because this book tells me how to be saved. So faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. Your faith is going to increase as we look at this book. Okay, that's Luke's prologue. Now let's move on and look at John's prologue, which is a lot more um, detailed, a lot more complex. Well, not really, but we're going to spend more time on it. Now, in last week's lesson, we learned that Luke wrote his account of Christ's life from a, an historical perspective, and John wrote his account of Christ's life from a, who remembers? I think I heard it. Theological perspective. Is that what I heard? <laughs> okay, you got to speak a little louder. I feel so, if we got a screen, maybe I can be down. I'd rather be down here than up here. I don't like being up here. But he wrote his, John wrote his account from a theologian's perspective, and so um, he emphasized a lot of Christian doctrine, a lot of Christian teaching. That's what we're going to be looking at. By the time he wrote his gospel, which was around 85 to 90 A.D., he was the last one to write the, four, the, the fourth gospel, there was an heresy which had developed within the church. By the time John wrote Gnosticism, had developed. Now, Gnosticism starts with the G. <laughs> G-N-O-S-T-I-C-I-S-M. The Gnostics denied that Jesus was God. They denied the deity of Jesus Christ. Therefore, you see, John purposed, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to demonstrate that Jesus was indeed God, God in human flesh. So in his first two verses, he made three very sweeping statements which affirmed that Je the Jesus whom he had known intimately, they say John was the most intimate of the apostles. He's the one who laid his head on the Lord's bosom at the Last Supper. He was always, he was one of the inner three. John dearly loved the Lord Jesus. He, so, um, and also he was related to him, wasn't he? John was the first cousin of Jesus. So um, he made three sweeping statements which affirmed that Jesus was indeed God and is indeed God himself. Now, in our discussion of John's prologue, we're going to consider two main subdivisions. If you see that on your outline, we're going to look at the Lord's person in verses 1 and 2 as we discuss his Christ's relationship with God. And then in part two, we're going to look at the Lord's power. So we're going to look at the Lord's person, his relationship to God. Then we're going to look at his power. And in that, we're going to look at his relationship with creation and his relationship with man. So that's where we're going. Let's begin with the Lord's person. It has rightfully been stated that the first five verses, by the way, did you flip over? I forgot to flip over to John chapter one. The first five verses of John's gospel are not only a magnificent literary gem. John had this wonderful gift of writing profound truths 
with very simple words. I mean, his words in a Greek um, textbook could be used almost for first graders. Very simple words, but boy, did he give deep truth. So they, were, they are a magnificent literary gem, but they also present for us the best capsule statement regarding the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ, which can be found anywhere in the Bible. The, the doctrinal truths found in these foundational New Testament verses are very, very critical. Because if a person misunderstands um, just the first five verses of John's Gospel, then, or if he has been taught them incorrectly, which also happens frequently, then his whole understanding of Christ is going to be flawed. It's, it's going to be uh, wrong. If you don't understand the first five verses of John chapter 1, or have been taught them wrong, everything you understand about Christ is going to be seriously flawed and deficient. So we need to look at these very carefully. In John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we read words that I think every Christian should memorize. Let's say them all together, okay? Verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Children, you need to learn those verses. Very, very important doctrinal verses. In those two verses, there are three main facets of Christ's relationship with God um, that we find. And those are that he is eternally God, that he is equally God, and that he is essentially God. The Holy Spirit, let's look at eternally God first of all. The Holy Spirit inspired John to begin his record at the, you know, the look, the life of Jesus, uh, Jesus Christ, God's Son, with the statement that in the beginning was the Word. The Word was already in existence. When? In the beginning. Now, the phrase in the beginning refers to the same in the beginning of Genesis 1-1. Remember, we studied Genesis. Those of you that have been in this study, that's what we just got through with a look at Genesis. Back in Genesis 1-1, what does it say? How does the Bible begin? <laughs> in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All right, so it's the same, speaking about the same time frame. It speaks of the time when, now make sure you get this, this is a little bit complicated, not really, but you have to think about it. It speaks of the time when creation came into existence, in the beginning, when God began creation. It does not speak of the time when Christ came into existence. In the beginning, is for us as finite creatures. We're not infinite like, like God. We are finite human creatures. So in the beginning, that little phrase is the earliest possible point of measured time for us. It does not refer to eternity. In the beginning doesn't go all the way back to the beginning of eternity. You can't do that because eternity cannot be measured. So when you see the phrase in the beginning, whether it's in Genesis 1-1 or John 1-1, it's talking about in the beginning, as far as we're concerned, 
when God created all that exists. Time, as you and I know it, is only one small part of eternity. Eternity can't be measured because eternity has no beginning and it has no end. Now, as finite creatures, that's hard for us to understand, isn't it? That something went on forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever in the beginning? I mean, I can't say in the beginning. <laughs> in time past, and I can't say time, in eternity past, and that it'll go on forever and ever and ever and ever and ever in time future. That's hard for us to think of, but in our glorified bodies, with our new minds, we will be able to understand that a little bit better. But right now, all we can say is that eternity cannot be measured. So this in the beginning is speaking about in the beginning when God created. Now, it's interesting to compare Moses' use and John's use of that little phrase in the beginning because uh, Moses told us what occurred after the beginning. What happened after the beginning? God created. Whereas John tells us what happened before the beginning. What happened before the beginning? The word was. The word existed before the beginning. So John's statement, did you follow me in that, everybody? <laughs> John's statement there, in the beginning was the word, is a point blank declaration of the eternal existence of the word. So then we have to ask ourselves, who or what is the word? And John, in the first 18 verses of his first chapter, makes it abundantly clear that who is the word jesus christ is the word if you doubt that you can look at verse 14 that makes it really clear the word was made flesh and dwelt among us he is speaking of jesus christ jesus christ is the word now in greek the word for word <laughs> is logos l-o-g-o-s and it is a very wonderfully appropriate name or title for the lord jesus christ because it declares him to be the same creative genius God of Genesis. It declares him to be the one who spoke all that is into existence by the mere power of his what? His word. The Lord Jesus' word is what put everything into existence. So he is the word. Now, and also, doesn't he refer to himself as the Alpha and Omega? We'll talk about that later. Um, the alpha and the omega would be like saying he's the A and the Z. He's every word that, that you can make with those letters of whatever alphabet it is that you might pick. Alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet, and omega is the last letter. Now, there are other scriptures besides John 1.1 which confirm for us the eternal existence of Christ. There is, for example, Colossians 1. Um, 17 that states that he is before all things that jesus christ is before all things and that's why the lord jesus himself could say in his high priestly prayer in john chapter 17 to his heavenly father when he was praying he said glorify thou me with thine own self with the glory which i had with thee before when before the world was. So Jesus said, I was with you, Father, in glory, before the world even came into existence. The prophet Micah also spoke this same truth about the eternality of Jesus Christ when he prophesied that the one who would be born in Bethlehem, specifically Bethlehem Ephrathah, 
was he whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. And uh, so we find that Christ, over and over again, he truly is, as it says in Isaiah 9, 2, the mighty God, the everlasting Father. That's a title for Jesus Christ. Not only wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the title for Christ, uh, the Prince of Peace. He's the Ancient of Days, as Daniel tells us. To deny the eternal existence of Christ, and believe that he only came into existence at the time when he was born, you know, from Mary's womb, is to totally misunderstand or purposely ignore the claims of Scripture. Put that back up. The birth of Jesus was not the time when Jesus Christ came into existence. He is the eternal Son of the living God. The birth of Jesus was simply the time when the eternal God manifested himself in flesh. And, and that act, by the way, when he became man, that act, or baby, to start with, did not in any way cause him to cease to be God. It simply merely also made him to become man. And uh, we're going to discuss this great mystery of the hypostatic union. Have you ever heard that before? That's what it's called in the theology, the hypostatic union when God uh, became man. It's, it's, the, it's the mystery of the God-man. We're going to discuss that further when we get into our look at the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and that's what John says in John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The infinite, you see, became finite.